Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we begin, here's a special code that gets you a discount subscription to New Scientist. The code is POD20. Go to newscientist.com POD20 to subscribe, and you get all the contents of the magazine plus audio versions of the stories to listen to on our app. Newscientist.com POD20 gets you that 20% discount. Hello, and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm your other host this week, Tiffany O'Callaghan. Welcome to the show. This week, we're also joined by New Scientist reporters Adam Vaughn and Michael LePage. Hello, both. Hello. Hi. Coming up on the show this week, we have a report from Rowan in the Arctic Circle, a piece from Adam on the official start of the Anthropocene, and a piece from Michael on an amazing organism that lives in water at 120 degrees Celsius. That's 248 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, that's hot. <laughs> uh, we've also got an interview with the uh, famous consciousness philosopher David Chalmers. But let's start with what we're learning about how COVID affects the brain. Right. So over the last couple of years, we've learned that COVID-19 can have profound consequences for the brain. Uh, a coronavirus infection can lead to a range of neurological and mental health disorders in both the short and long term. So we hear quite a lot about brain fog in particular, which is kind of this loosely defined thing of feeling a bit slow or fuzzy headed. And I know I definitely experienced it um, when I had COVID back in November of 2020. Um, yeah, I haven't had COVID, but I do have brain fog quite a lot. But uh, anyway, <laughs> that's beside the point. So two years in from when this all started, we are starting to now to get a clearer picture of how the virus might be causing these kinds of brain fog symptoms. In other words, we're starting to understand a bit about what the virus is doing in the brain and how the immune responses elsewhere in the body can affect brain function. Our reporter Jess Hamsalou has a piece in the mag this week all about this. And Tiff, you edited that. So what have we learned? Yeah, so early on in the pandemic, it became clear that severe cases of COVID-19 could lead to symptoms such as stroke or confusion or muscle weakness. And some neuroscientists theorized that it was because the virus itself might be attacking cells in the brain. We know that other viruses such as HIV and herpes are able to do this, and a direct attack might explain the rapid onset of some symptoms that we see. But the emerging picture suggests that while the virus can get into the brain, it doesn't seem to replicate there or to be damaging brain tissue directly. Well, so it just gets there and then sits about and doesn't do anything? Well, as we say, it, it doesn't appear to do anything directly in the brain. That is, from what we can tell from autopsy studies, there aren't any signs that the virus is replicating within our brain cells. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not doing anything to brain function. 
For one thing, there's the impact of the virus on blood vessels. Multiple studies have found that there's abnormal clotting in people with severe cases of COVID-19, and that's what can cause these devastating strokes. Autopsies have also revealed damage to blood vessels in the brain following COVID-19. So vessel walls become thinner. The vessels themselves appear to then leak proteins that then trigger an immune response. And it's those changed immune responses that have come to the fore as potentially the most significant culprit when it comes to the neurological and mental health symptoms, including those that can persist. Wow. So this immune response might be what's behind long COVID. Yeah, um, that's that's what we're, we're trying to get to the bottom of. So long COVID is the term that has been assigned to this constellation of symptoms that can affect individuals months after an initial infection. And that includes changes to the way their senses work, headaches, cognitive problems, including what we were talking about as brain fog. Okay, so just to repeat all this again, we think it's because of the thinning of the blood vessels that you sometimes get with COVID infection that is behind this or might be. That may be part of it because that thinning of the blood vessels enables some proteins to leak out of the blood vessels and those and then prompt this change to immune activity. But that may not be the only way that we're prompting this change to immune activity. Now, when researchers look at spinal fluid, so that's the fluid that bathes the brain and spinal cord taken from people with COVID-19, they almost never actually find virus which supports the idea that the virus itself isn't replicating in the brain or causing direct harm there. But what they do see in this spinal fluid are changes in immune cells. So some immune cells found there appear to be producing more chemicals that we know can be toxic to some brain cells, for example. And autopsies have also found increased activity of microglia, and those are the immune cells of the central nervous system. And that change activity in those cells is seen across the brain. But we still don't know yet if something similar is happening in the brains of people who have had mild infections, who we also know can still go on to develop long COVID. Jess writes in the piece that the researchers are now fleshing out this idea about the role of immune changes causing long COVID symptoms like brain fog. And they're looking into parallels with what they see after chemotherapy for cancer. And that's the thinking and memory problems that are sometimes called chemo brain. Yeah, so this is really fascinating. So previous research has shown that these brain symptoms that can follow cancer treatment, um, chemo brain, as you mentioned, seem to be caused by the body's immune response to the chemotherapy drugs. And this really recent initial research in mice suggests that infection with coronavirus can do something similar. Wow. So altogether, we're looking at the theory that immune responses may be responsible for some of these brain effects of COVID. These are getting, this is getting stronger, this idea. That's exactly right. So that's what this latest evidence seems to point to. But the one thing that's you know a hopeful takeaway from that is if that is the case, then these effects should be reversible. Now, from the amount you hear the word, you could be forgiven for thinking that we live in the Anthropocene. That is that we're officially in the geological epoch where humans have had a significant impact on the planet, but we're not. Not officially, but that could change this year with the announcement of the golden spike marking the start of the epoch. Adam, you've done a story on this. What's the golden spike? Well, it's, it's sometimes literally a metal golden, it's literally a golden spike, but it's also used sort of synonymously with what's formerly known as the Global Boundary Stratotype Section and Point, or GSSP. So you can see maybe why people use Golden Spike occasionally. Catchy. That's basically yeah. <laughs> That's basically the sort of formal boundaries for different geological units of time and, and they sort of that's how we will go about if you know the Anthropocene is to be declared an official epoch then that would be what will mark the start of it so that needs to have 
a certain place in the world and a certain point in time to mark the start of it. Why has it been so controversial? I mean, to some extent, isn't it obvious we're already in an era with massive global impact um, caused by humanity? So it's a really good question. So there is a general sort of consensus amongst uh, scientists that, yes, we are sort of clearly living in a human dominated era that is different to, you know, what's come before the Industrial Revolution, partly because of our technology and partly because of the number of us and also crucially the global nature of our impact so you know some parts of the you know like britain for example obviously industrialized earlier but what's what's notable about the anthropocene is a lot of these impacts you know from the fallout of nuclear weapons radionuclides to plastics to fly ash from coal power stations these are quite often found globally now but uh, there's little controversy that we are living in a human dominated period what is controversial is whether or not that requires it to be formally declared a new epoch so some people think that we should just just sort of say well this is an ongoing process and we don't need a sort of single marker in place in time to indicate the start of it so what are the candidates for that single marker for the for the spike so what needs to happen this year is there's a group called the anthropocene working group which is going to decide what will be the so-called primary marker or the main sort of sign of humanity's fingerprint if you like and there's loads of candidates for this there's a sort of strong favor towards choosing plutonium from nuclear weapons testing because you know it's so clear that it wasn't there and then it was there from the 50s on the 1950s onwards so it's a very there's there's a sort of appeal in the sort of clarity of it uh, in terms of a signal but then there's other issues that are being weighed up so although it's a very clear signal you could argue this otherwise, I guess, but it doesn't didn't really sort of materially change the the Earth as a, in a sort of geological sense. Whereas things like burning fossil fuels, which really sort of accelerated in the nineteen fifties, obviously have done because of climate change. So, ice cores are another candidate because they contain a methane record that shows both our fossil fuel use and our sort of large scale changes to land and agriculture. So there's there's a whole bunch of candidates. And the particular sites? I mean, it seems a bit weird we need a particular site, but, you know, are there other sites for other epochs? There are GSSPs for various geological units of time. The what example I give in the piece is actually for not an epoch, but a period, which is the Cretaceous, 66 million years ago. And that's actually a cliff face near a town in Tunisia. And that's because there's a very sort of clear iridium signature there from an asteroid that triggered a major extinction there's there's a whole bunch of others for other units of time and, and the the ones for the anthropocene there's 12 sites in a sort of race if you like researchers have been spent the last few years gathering as much evidence some are sort of better studied than others um to get as much data as they can basically so that they have the most breadth of those sort of different indicators that i you know touched on from some have, for example, you know, there's a bay in Japan that has, it's got the signature of atomic bomb testing, but it also contains fish scales showing, you know, how fishing went up a scale. And there's, you know, there's a cave in Italy, um, there's a lake in Canada, there's a coral reef in um, the Great Barrier Reef, and there's another coral as well. There's ice from ice core from Antarctica. So there's a whole bunch of possible candidates in the race. So is making the Anthropocene official really kind of just a bit of intrigue among geologists that doesn't have much real world consequence or is there more to it? Yeah, I guess that's a good question. Does, does it really matter? Um, I mean, I think it certainly doesn't matter for science because a lot of scientific papers talk about the Anthropocene as a concept and to have it sort of formally nailed down at a particular point in time 
is going to you know mean a lot of people are going to have to revisit their work and um and that from you know for future when anything is being measured and we're talking about it then there will be a a formal adopted boundary that we that, that everyone has to consider but for the for the wider sort of the wider world and society i mean i think the interesting thing is that yes we've been talking about this for a long time but you know i think still a lot of people are not aware that it's a thing you know despite the fact that we like talking about it a lot of new scientists <laughs> um and also it could also act as a catalyst hopefully um from people making positive environmental changes to sort of mitigate some of those human impacts we've made so Simon Turner at University College London, he said, you know, it's easy to be pessimistic about about the Anthropocene because of the sort of you can get quite fatalistic about the huge changes we've wrought. But he said, on the other hand, people understand we're a geological agent. He said, you always hope that people will suddenly realise this is the only planet we have. So it could be possibly it could be a sort of kick up the bum to make us do something about those impacts and the way we have changed the planet. Let's take a quick break. First, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Brilliant. Brilliant has an extensive library of interactive courses, exploring things like the science of infinity, casino probability, and there's even a course on cryptocurrency. As we've been discussing, whether it's from COVID or not, most of us have felt the effects of brain fog. A great way to combat the problem is by putting your brain to the test. Puzzles like Brilliant's perplexing probability course will help you engage your mind. Also, we mentioned plutonium potentially signalling the start of the Anthropocene. If that's got you interested in the science of nuclear reactors, check out Brilliant's course on the physics of the everyday. Whether you're a beginner or advanced, Brilliant is a fun way to learn real problem solving by doing it yourself. You can get started learning on Brilliant today for free, and the first 200 listeners to sign up using our special link will get 20% off, unlimited access to all the courses on Brilliant for a whole year. That link is brilliant.org slash new scientist. We'll pop a link in the show notes. The other thing to tell you about is an amazing online talk by our very own Kat Delange. Kat's talk is called Brain Power, everything you need to know for a healthy, happy brain. And it's on next Thursday, the 3rd of February. Kat's just written a book all about the brain and the talk will shine a spotlight on the latest science of brain health. Tickets and more information are available at newscientist.com slash brainpower. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, last week I wasn't on the podcast as I was in the Arctic Circle. 
Yeah, I was very jealous of your glorious pictures of the Northern Lights. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the whole point of Instagram, isn't it? To show off about <laughs> where you've been. Um, and it was amazing. I was there as part of a, the New Scientist Discovery Tours that we run. We've got loads of tours now that we run. And um, I got to spend time on an island, uh, just a ferry ride away from Tromso in the north of Norway. And there you're almost guaranteed to see the aurora, which we did. And also it was just great to get into the forest on snowshoes and just trek off into the, the silence. This may seem a silly question, but, you know, that far north, was it very, very cold? Well, actually, it wasn't as cold as I'd prepared for, you know. So it turns out the Gulf Stream still goes up to those parts. So the port at Tromso is always ice free. Um, and that's partly why it's become why it was such a, a major port back in the day, even though it's in the Arctic Circle. Unlike other parts on the same latitude in Canada, say, and there it's much colder. And obviously it's still, it was warm because, or warmer than it ought to have been because of climate change. And that's a really sobering thing to experience. You know, we talk about it all the time. And on the last day of the trip, it poured with rain. And, you know, in the Arctic Circle in mid-January, it's just, you know, it's horrendous. Yeah, yeah it really shouldn't be raining up there. It's no. not. It's not. <laughs> yeah. So while I was in Tromsø, I met some scientists from the Norwegian Polar Institute and one of them, Jack Kohler, had just published a paper all about ice loss on glaciers on Svalbard. And uh, I spoke to him about that. We'll talk about your recent work on Svalbard in a minute. But first, can you tell us a bit about Svalbard for those of us who only might know it from Philip Pullman novels? Yeah, it's an island archipelago to the north of uh, the Norwegian coast, about an hour and a half flight north of northern Norway longer if you're coming from Oslo, and it's east of Greenland. It's a very Arctic place and yet very warm because it's right at the top of the final loop of the Gulf Stream. So it's it's relatively temperate for being in the very high Arctic. Is that why it's um, sometimes here it called the canary in the coal mine for climate change? Is that why? It's one, one of the reasons it's very quickly warming, yes, is it's, it's surrounded by ocean and, and furthermore by warm ocean and by warming ocean. Okay, so let's talk about your latest paper then. It looked at ice loss from glaciers on Svalbard from the 1930s to the present day and then makes projections into the future. Tell us about about that paper and and what you found. So we took older uh, photographs that were taken in the 30s, the first aerial photographs of Svalbard, and these were taken to make maps, to make accurate maps. There, There had been plenty of map making before that was done on the ground, but now they were flying around taking sequential photographs. And by combining them, taking two of them, looking at the same thing from different angles, you can make a, a map. The innovation here is that now we have software tools that allow us to take a whole sequence of photographs that look at the same point from many different angles and can make a much more accurate reconstruction than was possible with the equipment that they used before. So Emily Gaiman, the student who uh, was working on the project, took all f- over 5,000 images from the 1930s and then turned that into a, a digital elevation model for Svalbard, covering that period. And then we compared it to the modern digital elevation model, which was made using sort of similar techniques, but aerial photographs taken looking directly down with much higher degree of overlap and covering the entire archipelago. And that digital elevation model is from 2010, roughly. It actually uses photos from 2008 to 2012. But it's the most accurate and up-to-date digital elevation model for the archipelago, covering the entire archipelago. 
Yeah, and I've seen some of the photos and we'll post some of them um, along with this piece. And they're really remarkable. It shows the, the, the ice loss and the glacial thinning that's gone on in that time. So what are the projections showing that you've ended up with? So we difference these two uh, digital elevation models so we can see where where there's been loss and how much loss. And on average, if you take the average of, of the, the change over the entire island group, it's about 35 centimeters per year loss. Oh, that's not a sea level rise. That's 35 centimeters that's, off. That's just the, yeah, that's yeah. The, ice, the ice thinning by 35 centimeters every year between, let's say, 1936 and 2010. And so... Does this give us a projection of how long we've got left for ice on, on Svalbard? So the, the, uh, the innovation here is to use what's called a space for time substitution. The climate on Svalbard is quite gradated. So you have warmer temperatures to the south and to the west, and it becomes progressively colder to the north and to the east. And then you can take each glacier and then look at what the average temperature is for this period and compare it to the loss and then use that to take future temperature projections and uh, say what it would likely to be. So if you see that the far northeast is going to experience temperatures that are comparable to the far south, you can use what we observe for the uh, modern period of ice thinning to project what it will be in the future. And, and what is that projection? Uh, it varies depending on what temperature projection we use. There are, of course, different temperature projections for different CO2 scenarios. But it, it amounts to something like two to four times the ice loss that uh, we observe for this modern period. So accelerated ice loss in this century. Exactly. So what's your dream outcome for this study, for people seeing this study? Well, it's it's another in a series of, of uh, studies that just constantly show the same thing. We're seeing glaciers thinning, retreating, and we are putting together the, the, the total sea level budget in each location where we do this, we are making more precise our estimates of what, what the contribution of each area is to currently observe sea level rise. And that will help us with our future predictions so we understand where we're heading. Still very jealous of your trip, Rowan. Um, and Adam, you actually wrote a piece about that Svalbard paper and we'll post a link into the show notes. Right, let's have a life form of the week, shall we? Yes. Now, Michael, you reported on a study of life not just deep in the ocean, but deep below the sea floor. That's right. So to start at the beginning, we used to think that life couldn't survive deep underground or even deep below the sea floor. But a series of extraordinary discoveries has completely changed all of that. So, for instance, in 1992, one study found that there were 11 million microbes in every cubic centimetre of sediment, half a kilometre below the sea floor. So far from being sort of a dead area, does that mean that deep underground is actually teeming with life? Well, sort of. So there's definitely a lot of life. So one estimate is that up to 10% of all the biomass on the planet is underground. But it's not quite life as we know it. So these sediments <laughs> under the seafloor, they're rarely cold near the surface and there's not a lot of food. So these microbes basically survive by doing almost nothing. And they do it incredibly slowly. In fact, it's thought that some of these individual microbes could be millions of years old. 
Wow, that is incredible, millions of years old. But Michael, what's the latest discovery about these things? So as you go deeper underground, it gets hotter because of the heat from Earth's core. So it's just been generally assumed that all life dies out once the temperature reaches around 80 degrees Celsius or so. But now a team has been analysing samples that they drilled from the Nankai Trough just off Japan. So the seafloor there is four kilometres down, so really deep. And then the team drilled down another 1.2 kilometres beneath it uh, to a point where the temperature reaches 120 degrees Celsius. So pretty toasty. Well, Michael, were they just drilling in order to look for microbes or were they drilling for something else? Uh, they were. They, were, they, they yeah. might wake up Godzilla if they're drilling <laughs> under Japan. <laughs> <laughs> they were drilling for life. Um, and they found life down there. Yes, even in those extreme conditions, there was still life. What they found uh, was that there were far fewer microbes, but the experiments they did on board the drill ship showed that they've got a really high metabolism. So it's basically the complete opposite of what's happening nearer the sea floor. Instead of having lots of microbes living a really slow life, they're just a few living a really fast life. So does this mean that not only surviving, but some microbes can even thrive at 120 degrees? Well, that's a part we need to be a bit careful about. So with the equipment they had aboard the ship, the team could only measure the metabolism at 90 degrees. So the fact that they found activity in samples taken from 120 degree sediment shows that some microbes are definitely still alive at that temperature. But it's possible that they were in some kind of dormant state and only came back to life once it was cooled down a bit. And what about lab studies that show that some microbes can grow even at 122 degrees? So that's a figure you'll find if you look this up online. But actually what I discovered is that that number's based on just a couple of studies done done sort of in the 2000s and other teams haven't been able to repeat them. So it's a bit controversial. So, so everyone agrees that microbes can keep metabolising and growing up to 106 degrees Celsius. But beyond that, it gets a bit controversial. But I think whatever the precise number turns out to be for the, the sort of the upper heat limit for life, whatever that number is, studies like this are showing that there's life deeper than we thought in places that we thought were just too hot. And of course, that means that life elsewhere in the universe could also be found in these sorts of conditions. Now, we've got a big interview in the magazine this week uh, with the philosopher David Chalmers, haven't we, Tiff? We have. Uh, Chalmers is famous for his work on the so-called hard problem of consciousness, which is you know, basically the puzzle of why we have conscious experience at all. Mm. Um, that's something we talk about a lot in the magazine and on this show, of course. But this week in the magazine, we talked to Chalmers about his work on the philosophy of virtual worlds. And, you know, that's very relevant. As we all know, you know Mark Zuckerberg is plunging us all into a virtual world anytime now. Ah, yeah, we can only hope to join that soon. Um, <laughs> anyway, let's listen to what Chalmers has to say about the mystery of consciousness. Our executive editor, Richard Webb, spoke to him and asked him about the bet he made some time ago with neuroscientist Christoph Koch that we wouldn't be able to pin down the brain mechanisms that give rise to consciousness. That is what's referred to as the neural correlate of consciousness by 2023. And Richard put it to him that he'd won that bet. It's looking pretty good for me now. Um, it won't be settled for another year and a half. Yeah, this wasn't exactly a bet about, the, uh, about a full explanation of consciousness. It was a more limited bet just about what people call the neural correlates of consciousness. I'm quite open to the idea that eventually we'll find some system in the brain or some property of the brain that correlates very nicely with consciousness. It may not fully explain consciousness, but it would be a, would be a huge step 
on the way. But uh, Christoph, at least in 98, was very optimistic that uh, we were on the path to getting there soon. Quite soon, we'd have something that correlated with, that stood to consciousness as, you know, DNA plays the role that say the DNA plays for the gene. Of course, his, uh, his partner and mentor was Francis Crick, for whom uh, DNA and the gene was always the model. So will we find something like that for consciousness? I think Christoph bet it would be some intrinsic property of neurons, some small number of intrinsic properties of neurons would be acknowledged as the neural correlate of consciousness by 2023. I was always very, very skeptical about this. I thought it's going to be a lot more complicated than that. And it's going to take a lot more time than that. And I think, um, yeah, that bet is right now looking pretty good for me. Christoph himself has switched to advocating the integrated information theory of consciousness, which locates it in information property processing rather than properties of neurons. So that alone might be enough for me to win the bet. But let's see, I think we're gonna have some kind of event to settle this in mid 23. So he's got a, he's got a year and a half. Right. And of course, for the, for the, the wider problem, the mystery of why we experience stuff, you, you coined the phrase, the hard problem of consciousness. Can you explain a little why it's such a problem? Why is it so hard? Yeah, so for me, the hard problem of consciousness is a problem of explaining subjective experience. Why is there something it's like to be us? Why do we have subjective, when we, have, when we see, when we hear, there's you know, information, strikes our sensory organs, gets processed by our brains, leads to behavior, that's all, we can tell a nice mechanistic story about all of that, but why does it feel like something from the inside? Why is there a subjective experience of seeing, of hearing? And you know, it looks like many of our methods in science, and especially in the sciences of the mind are kind of set up for, we give explanations of behavior and of objective functioning by pointing to mechanisms in the brain, neural mechanisms, or sometimes computational mechanisms. We explain how a system does something objectively, producing some behavior, and that explains learning or language or memory. But uh, that's great for explaining these matters of objective functioning. But when it comes to consciousness, we're trying to explain subjective experience. And it looks like you could explain all the things I, in principle, you know, to explain all the things I do, the way my brain discriminates sensory information, integrates it, leads to behavior, produces report. To explain all that is not to explain why there's subjective experience. There's this further question. Why is all this experienced from the inside? You know, why doesn't it go on in the dark without consciousness? And it just looks like a different kind of question. And have we made any progress towards solving it? I'd say there's things we understand a lot better than we did. I guess it was 94 when I first put this forward. So uh, there's things we understand a lot better than we did 27 years ago. Certainly the science of consciousness is, has you know, moved ahead in many impressive ways. And although we haven't nailed down the neural correlates of consciousness perfectly, we're on the way to understanding the, you know, the correlations between brain and consciousness better. But that, of course, doesn't solve the big question of why is there consciousness in the first place? There, I'd say we've explored some theoretical options, many of which are very interesting and promising, all of which also have big problems. One idea which has attracted a lot of attention is panpsychism. The idea there's some element of consciousness at the fundamental level of physical reality, which then somehow adds up to and produces our consciousness. But so far, no one's been able to explain how it is that consciousness at the bottom level of physical reality could add up to uh, consciousness like ours. 
There are theories in the neuroscience, like say global workspace theory of consciousness, they don't really address the hard problem. There's something like this integrated information theory that Giulio Tononi has put forward. Consciousness is a special form of information processing, but it still looks like at the basis, it doesn't really tell you why consciousness exists in the first place. People have explored connections with quantum mechanics. Oh, and another really interesting idea that a lot of people have thought about is the idea that consciousness is an illusion. It doesn't really exist at all. I take that seriously, though it's very hard to believe. So I'd say that we've gotten a lot further down a lot of different pathways and alternatives for addressing the hard problem, but deep down, there's nothing even close to a solution that commands the consensus of more than a few people here. Do you have a hunch where it might lie, what the most promising avenue is? In general, I've argued for views that don't uh, try to reduce consciousness to, uh, say, a, a brain process or to something simpler, but take it as, a, as something fundamental in the universe in the way that, say, space and time and mass and charge might be. And then we need to find you know, the laws that it might obey. And in that vicinity, I guess I take especially seriously panpsychist ideas that I've tried to explore. And also the idea that maybe consciousness is distinct from any physical process, but plays a role in the physical world. And here I think some connections between consciousness and quantum mechanics are worth exploring. And in some recent work, I've tried to develop a view along that line that takes the mathematics of quantum mechanics seriously, sees if we can find a role for consciousness. But to cut a long story short, I'd say, although I think these are promising paths to investigate, in my experience, the further you go down these paths, the more problems you find. So I've not found anything that I'm uh, actually satisfied with yet, but those are at least directions to explore. I've also been exploring the idea that consciousness might be an illusion and the idea that maybe the way to make progress on the hard problem of consciousness is to address what I call the meta problem. The meta problem is instead of explaining consciousness, explain why we say the things we do about consciousness. Maybe there could be a physical explanation of that, even if that's not a physical explanation of consciousness. Maybe that could give us some clues about the hard problem. That was philosopher David Chalmers talking to our very own Richard Webb, uh, and great to get it from the horse's mouth there about the meta problem. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed our show, please tell all your friends about it and subscribe to the magazine. Thanks to our guests this week, reporters Adam Vaughan and Michael LePage, and also Richard Webb and David Chalmers. Uh, we're back next week. At See you then. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.